Welcome to Reputation Town. Welcome to another episode of the Reputation Town podcast. This is Warren Weeks. I'm joined, as always, uh, by my friend and co-host, John Paranak. And this week, we are blessed to have with us again from the United States, Molly McPherson. Molly, thank you for being with us again. Bless you, Warren. <laughs> Before we jump in, there's a lot of cool stories going on this week that we're going to chop up over the, lo- uh, the next hour or so. Um, any off-topic banter that anybody wants to get off their chest, anything you've seen outside of the public relations or media relations realm that you just kind of want to talk about? Paranak, why don't we start with you? I'll give you my new favorite snack. Uh, it's called uh, Stroopwafel. It's like a Dutch thing that is like literally all it is is two thin waffles with, with some sort of like solidified syrup in between them. Great. It's like eating, eating a pancake on the go. And where do you get these things? It's like a Dutch imported thing. I had to go to the Dutch counter at your grocery store. I so guess. This is nothing new. This is just new to you. It's new to me. It's like, I'm sure Dutch people have been eating them for a long time. So in other words, you've had a slow week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, Molly, anything in the snack realm or any other areas you want to chat about? I'm a little stuck on the fact that in Canada you have Dutch grocery stores. Is that what you said? Or did the oh, Dutch did. section of the grocery store? Yeah. It's a very multicultural country. A multicultural country. Uh, no, it's well, this is a week of, I think, all crisis all the time. I think we have a lot to talk about. We can start with the grocery store. Oh, right. So, Paranak, nice, nice segue. And Molly, thanks for bringing that up. So, there's a grocery chain in Canada called Sobeys. And anyone who lives here would know their familiar green signs. Um, folks in the States would not be familiar with it, but you get the idea. What, what's your big one there? Publix or something? Is that one of the big ones? No, not where I live, but no, uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, there's many. Kroger. Cro- okay, Kroger's one. Market Basket, Star Foods, Stop and Shop. Go on. Detroit TV when I was a kid, so I'm a big fan. So anyway, this organization has had a uh, suspected cyber attack going on for the last five or six days. And um, the reason that, that we're bringing it up on the Reputation Town podcast is that there's been absolute radio silence from the company. Now, they're owned by a company called Empire Company Limited. It's a publicly traded company. The stock is down like, I don't know, 3 or 4% over the past couple of days. I don't know if it's r- related at all. They sent out a news release on Monday saying that they were having quote-unquote IT system issues. Meanwhile, there's all sorts of rumor, speculation. There's signage up saying things aren't working. People couldn't get their pharmacy orders fulfilled. Um, There's stories about empty shelves within the store because they can't get their product placed. So it's having an operational impact. And there's a lot of uh, chatter online with uh, people in various areas, like asking for the company, like, why are you not being accountable? I keep going to their Twitter page every day. There's nothing there. And um, there's also no comments underneath. No no one from the public seems to be taking this very seriously. So um, is this the new way to approach your ongoing cyber attack? Because apparently the rumors, because that's all there are at this point, rumors that that the hackers are looking for 13 or so odd million dollars to um, release the company's information. So uh, can a company get away with this? What are the implications? And from a reputational standpoint, what do we make of this ghosting of the media? And uh, Paranak, why don't we start with you? 
Okay, well, I'll tell you why I think they're getting away, why they're doing this is Empire Company, um, which is kind of, I think, 92% owned by the Sobe family. They have, they have, it's like a dual class share structure, like Facebook and some other companies where, you know, one person or a small group of people own the majority of voting shares, which means they control a company. Well, in this case, they control 92% of the company. So basically, I think a lot of, they operate like a private firm in effect, even though they're publicly traded. So the, the impact of market is blunted somewhat because kind of whatever the, the owners say goes, you know, Rogers, another example, Rogers communications, they're owned similar. So I think that's probably why what's happening here is that this isn't really being driven by the broader market dynamics of communications or the financial markets. And so that aside though, obviously if you're going to build trust, a modicum of transparency is probably a good thing. And, and if this is really what's happening, it's going to, it's going to be a, um, it's going to be an interesting story to tell or a difficult story for them to tell when they tell it eventually, if they tell it eventually, maybe they'll decide not to tell it. Like it, it's, it's the opaqueness that, that, uh, is one of the sort of bugs and features of a family owning a company this way. Hmm. Molly. Uh, that's so interesting that you would know the, the background on the business there, John. Um, and you absolutely tapped onto it, Warren, when you talk about how it affects operations, you know, any type of response now for cyber, and this is, you know, soon to be regulated, like, um, companies need to have cyber breach um, response plans in place, you know, when this does happen. And every playbook will tell you now that you do need to respond in some manner to bring a general awareness to what is happening. And Warren, when you mention the impact to operations, that's always the trigger to a crisis communication plan. That's that's the definition of a crisis is when it does impact um, operations and they should know. And so, John, and we didn't bring this crisis example up, but it ties in nicely. Um, did you see the CFO from Tyson's Food? Uh, oh, Tyson's yeah. Foods, who was found, you know, and, and, you know, drunkenly uh, passed out in a bed and they kept it a personal matter. Well, Tyson's, mm-hmm. he is a Tyson. And that the mindset was it was a personal matter. So, John, it sounds like they are choosing to make make it a personal family matter and not mm-hmm. uh, be public about the statement. Interesting. Can they get away with this, though, long term? And is, is it a function of maybe there's Molly, you mentioned it. I don't know if it was before we started taping or after, but there's so many crises going on right now. Like it's like basically every every direction you look, some companies dealing with one of these brush fires. And is it maybe a combination of that plus the deterioration of the media? Because I can't imagine like if I'm working in the business section of a, of a national newspaper or media outlet here, I just think of like when I back in the day when I started, when I got out of school and started working, I can't imagine someone not saying, go to their office, bring a camera, go to the office, knock on the door. I haven't seen any of that. I haven't. And so is that maybe just, are we at a a level of laziness, apathy, or just not enough players on the bench? I think it's a combination of all of the above. I mean, resources across um, you know, all news entities, particularly newspaper and local newspaper, it's like a desert of local news now. So do you have the resources to do it? And and also, there's probably some editorial gatekeeping there, someone determining, is it a news story that they are not commenting? But it doesn't mean that they're not following it. So they could wait to see 
like if they're thinking like John, okay, we know that they are um, mismanaging this crisis. Let's just wait for the true crisis to come out of it and follow up on the story. So they could just be sitting on it for a bit. Mm. I don't want to be too, too conspiratorial though, but like Canada is a small market and where empire is based in Eastern Canada is the smallest of small markets. And if I'm those news organizations and I'm the beneficiary of like all this grocery driven oh, advertising man. from Sobeys, how, mm-hmm. how ambitious am I going to send the, the, the news team to the front door? Right. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's BS, but oh, you I, nailed it. I, I don't think it is. You I don't think it. it is at all. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Paranac. Mm-hmm. It's striking right to the heart of it. Yep. So we'll, we'll let <laughs> but, that one sit. Warren, but- oh, go ahead. So you worked as a, a journalist, but doesn't this also speak to the fact that, like, is there anyone even to send? Like, in some of these news organizations, it wouldn't shock me if there there's such a, a small team that, um, like, how how yeah. many people actually le- are left to do this kind of reporting? I don't know, a lot less. Um, I remember, you know, my sister's a newspaper reporter, and this is years ago. Every year there would be an email that she would uh, tell me about that they would be letting go like 70 or 80 people every year. And you'd see the name. She's like, Oh my God, I know. So it, it's weird that just over time, all those individuals are gone. So I don't know. It's, I find it, uh, I find it like you wonder what, what kind of BS are government agencies, politicians, companies getting away with that they should know about. And so in some ways from a crisis management standpoint, maybe the company's just sitting there and saying, you know, they're taking the temperature. There's not a lot of media ruckus. It's not really blowing up. So like, mm, why don't we just keep our heads down? <laughs> that, that might be the approach. And, and sadly, it seems to be working. Okay, moving along. Molly, you had um, what you were calling a social media sort of mini crisis in the past week or so. And it's fascinating that someone who deals with this stuff and counsels people on this and has this wildly popular TikTok channel um, why don't you talk to us about what took place and the findings you've taken away from this and that you can try to apply to your clients. When you're someone, and and both of you, this applies, but when you're someone who analyzes crisis communication response, you know it's only a matter of time before you're involved, you know, in your own, if you're in a very public space, right? And that is something with TikTok as my numbers have grown, you know, talking about a crisis and, and, or talking about issues where people might be a little hot about it anyway, and have strong opinion. I always knew it'd be a matter of time. Like, when is it that the, the can the person who talks about the cancel culture gets, you know, canceled herself. So that opportunity reared its head for me this week, because I had chimed in, uh, you know, my account, even though I like to analyze the crisis response of companies, celebrities, you know, like, you know, the bigger names, I've become someone who people assume I'm a victim advocate when bad things happen online and they want to boost uh, the story about it. So there were always, they, they come to me whenever there's a horrible response, no matter how big or how small, like for instance, you know, can there was an employee at Canada goose who put a story on TikTok about the working conditions and Canada goose, as you both, I know, know this, have had their issues with workers and trying to unionize and union busters that mentality. So anyway, um, you know, I get taken in that and, um, you know, made a, a commentary, you know, on that. And so I'm, I'm kind of being known for, you know, for that, but at any rate, there were a, a case 
that I am, am noticing that this week, so it's interesting, how many people, particularly on TikTok, who are viral vig- vigilantes, if they see someone do something wrong, they're going to film it and then they're going to talk about it. And that usually comes with some form of doxing too. Mm -hmm. We're now like, I deem you to do something wrong. So now I'm going to dox you on top of it. And so these lives are targeted and destroyed. And so I see these all the time. And then we had the case of the girl from the university of Kentucky who was filmed um, calling an RA who was black, the N word like 20 times or something like that. It was just a long prolonged drunken, you know, attack and was all filmed. And this girl's life, is pretty much ruined, right? I mean, it's just ruined. It makes the news. And so I thought, isn't this interesting? Like what's happening on TikTok now where people are deciding, they're determining who should be called out. And then at what point does the press, you know, come in? So at any rate, um, there was a story about a woman who was fat shaming another woman in an airport and she was um, filming it. And then naturally she put it on social media, which, because why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you like cruel, cruelly shame someone and then post it online? (laughs) Well, naturally she was, you know, she was eviscerated and then she was doxxed. People found out who she was and, and then they wanted to come after her. So I had made a comment about it, like had, had stitched one of these videos. And a lot of people were talking about, cause she did a, an apology, not an apology, but an explainer where she ranted how hungry she was because she's a celiac and there's no food. And that's what triggered her was this woman was eating this food. Um, still not excusable by any means, still reprehensible behavior. Right. Um, but I thought, God, isn't that interesting though, that her reply to it was just her anger behind not having access to food and and people who who do suffer from severe food allergies or celiacs like if you eat gluten it does you know kind of mess with your head and it becomes and then how this how my brain works it's like oh that's kind of like kanye west being anti-semitic and then people saying oh but is that the bipolar speaking so it's not a pass but it's a contributing factor to these outbursts right so i had made a commentary about that well Many people will, you know, let me know. So in the replies, you know, it's like, you know, that people are saying, oh, I, you know, I understand it, understand it. And then it was, uh, then people started saying how negative it was. And then, then it turned where everybody was telling me that I was wrong to do this and that, um, that I should not, um, I should not give her an excuse because she had celiac disease. So then all of a sudden the narrative was, I was excusing her behavior because she had celiac disease. Uh, Isn't this interesting? This is like watching misinformation in real time on my account. Okay. And then meanwhile, in the direct messages, I have people telling me, oh, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But in the DMs, this doesn't help me. So then I'm moving and I'm realizing, okay, this is, and I've talked about this kind of in the past before, an algorithm crisis. Because the only thing that gets through are the people who are commenting. And people are forming an opinion based on comments. Like I can see on the back end, they're not even watching the video. They don't even know what I'm saying. They're just picking it up in the commentary. And then if someone else takes it, does a duet, and now they're spreading that, and then it grows and it grows and it grows. So I, of course, look at it as, okay, this is now how, how companies need to respond in this, in this day and age of like, uh, of social media. And you often hear, and I'm sorry, I'll stop talking. I realize I'm going on a pedestal here, but, um, but like Olivia Wilde, when she was talking about the movie, don't worry, darling. Right. And you hear that, that familiar rhetoric of blaming the internet, blaming the internet. 
Well, there is truth to it, but you cannot use it as an excuse. In a, you just can't use it as crisis. However, you cannot dismiss that it's actually true, that there is an angry algorithm out there mm-hmm. that goes against a person or against a brand when they're dealing with a crisis. So, Warren, to tie it back to what you're saying, I think more companies are reluctant to respond how they normally would because they already know that whatever the response is, it's going to attract all of this negative negativity, which is going to be picked up by the social media platform and make the crisis work. Mm. So this is how Professor Molly has been thinking all week. Professor Molly. I have to ask, though, on a personal level, when this is taking place and you see your phone blowing up in a in a negative way, what, are you freaking out at all? Like, so you start having like, oh my God, your heart is pounding because I think that's just a human reaction, even if you do this for a living. Yeah. So that's a great question because I said, oh gosh, here it is. Here it is. is okay. Like moment. I am dealing with this in real time. Ironically, I was writing a crisis communication plan at the time. And my last post on TikTok was how to respond to a social media crisis. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take the advice of Molly McPherson on TikTok, <laughs> which is to remember, like, it's not personal and it's true. It's not, you don't know these people. Right. And a lot of people you can tell, like you just, you can't, because they're just numbers and, and and you can see it. So because I do this for a living, I can honestly say I wasn't panicked. I wasn't like, but I was, it was like kind of a moment of like, oh shit, look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the mud right now. And so what I ended up doing is I thought, okay, I got to take all this in as someone who does this and now I have to watch it. And to be honest, I really said, I have to, I left my post up longer than I wanted to because I really wanted to play it out as evidence. Um, And then I ended up filming another video where I did what I tell my clients all the time and where they don't like to do it, but I tell them they have to do it. And that is you have to decide what the linchpin is, like what is the pain point? And you have to acknowledge that you've done something wrong. Like you have to give the people, the masses, something. So I did, you know, an own it video and explained like, oh, I can see, because really what I said was taken out of context. Plain and simple, it was just taken out of context and went from there. But I said, you know what, I see how... It wasn't, I wasn't clear. And the mistake that I made too is TikTok allows you three minutes. If it's a duet, you get two and a half. But you can't assume that everybody's going to watch everything that you have to say. So it's set up to be taken out of context. Mm. And I said, that's on me. So like that is a lesson that I learned. Like I shouldn't be putting out information like that that could be a trigger to people because then it was duetted like someone who talked about ableism and how I was, I was um, allowing fat shaming and what about able, you know, it was just, and then other people who were talking about shaming her would then shame me. And I thought, isn't the irony in this just noteworthy, but I can't be the asshole that goes on and says that, but boy, did I want to. So I, so I just took it, you know, I took my lumps and I said, you know, I, I was wrong for doing whatever, whatever, whatever. And then I watched it. And then this is the last part. I thought, okay, now I have to do this with my clients. How do you bust the algorithm? How do you stop it? So you do not allow these posts to have duets or can be shared. Like you limit that just like Instagram stories, how people in a crisis will put it up for 24 hours and then it goes away. So you bust through the algorithm. Mm. Then on your account, 
you start posting other, you know, you start engaging with other accounts that are far away from the crisis. I did a, um, a video yesterday with a guy who I met in TikTok. For, he's a, a comedy writer and he's in Boston. And I said, we got to film a TikTok because he knew what was going on with me. And he was laughing hysterically. He said, you never should have said anything. Well, he said, why would you ever apologize? He said, why would you? You weren't wrong. I said, eh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But anyway, and then I busted through the algorithm and then boop. How long after did it kind of die off? Um, I'm telling you, like, as soon as I deleted the photo, it dropped immediately. So there were still a couple tags of people that were really small creators that yeah. want to leverage you, you know, like leverage your, the like they'll, crisis, they'll crisis yeah. jack yeah. an account to do it. And so there's a little bit of those, but then yeah. it vanished. And I thought, okay, I have learned a crisis communication, social media crisis hack, which I'm writing up in a plan right now. Don't engage with the negativity, which is counter to what I used to tell them to do, which is engage, you know, so you could get feedback and so you don't look like an asshole. Mm. But now it's like, it's not you against the public. It's you against an algorithm and an algorithm doesn't care if you're an asshole. What a great example of eating your own dog food though, as a crisis manager. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it it didn't taste great, but still it was, it was (laughs) learning too. And I also knew the environment. It's not like I thought, Oh, this is the end by any means. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a pebble in my shoe for a while and it bothered me, but I saw the opportunity because every crisis is an opportunity for learning. And I did like, I, I learned what a mistake that I made, but I also learned a lot about the environment. But there's so many people, I think, you know, your reaction was, uh, it sounds pretty cool. Like you're like, Oh, a little uncomfortable, I'm in the mud, but then you kind of dealt with it. That kind of attention, we've seen situations in the past where executives, really seasoned, smart people who don't have those muscles, they hide under the bed and they pull down all their accounts. And that's the exact wrong thing to do, right? It it really is the wrong thing to do. And you have to, and this is what I tell my clients, and this is where I'm so deep in this now, you guys, with crisis response and this victimology is... Victims need to have some sort of relief or some sort of validation. They need that in order to move on. If they don't get it, they won't move on and they will keep dragging it. So I tell them, and I was practicing what I preached. I thought, okay, I have to give and say, this was wrong to do X. And, you know, cause that's what I do. I did my indestructible PR framework, you know, for myself. Um, and cause I really wanted to see also, cause I have more empathy now too mm-hmm. for my yeah. clients who go through it. I know how it feels to be exposed and fun. you feel vulnerable. It's not fun, but it with the proof is in the pudding. You guys is you don't shut down. You don't cause they will not go away and you'll, they'll bury you. Huh. All right. Paranak, we have a crypto story. Everyone, everyone, well, who hasn't seen the story this week? Just bonkers story from the 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 crypto world. And uh, we wanted to chat about some of the re- reputational elements about this. So do you want to just kind of walk us through what took place? And I think, Molly, you had some thoughts on this as well. Sure. So uh, crypto firm um, FTX, anyone who watches baseball will probably know them because they bought the advertising on the front of every umpire's uniform <laughs> in MLB last year one of the most uh, visible crypto firms, the guy who um, uh, the guy was CEO, he put himself out as a bit of like the good guy in the industry. And he's going to, he's going to lead the way to, to a reputable crypto industry. And he was, you know, testifying to Congress. And at any rate, um, in reality, it looks like the firm was, was uh, massively over leveraged. And on top of that, 
it may be that he was using client funds to make other risky investments. And long story short, the house of cards fell down this week. And as of today, they've, I think both, I'm not sure if it's both the U S or the international unit, but at any rate, uh, one or both of them have filed for bankruptcy protection, which is not shocking given the, given the situation they're in. And, you know, this was a, a moment of, of, again, looking at crisis, crisis response, like Molly was just saying about how, how companies do this, how organizations do this. And I found it interesting because the first reaction was not their own. Like the basically news overtook the business world, the crypto world on its own accord as, um, uh, there were whispers of them being in trouble, and then they had. Uh, there was an announcement that um, a competitor had had offered to come in and and bail them out, essentially. And then the next day, that com- that competitor backed out of the deal, and here we are in bankruptcy. But at any rate, they, they, um, FTX didn't really say anything to start. Then a couple of days afterwards, the CEO finally spoke, and I'm just looking at his his tweets now. Um, there's not a ton of substance in them other than to say like strategically, what did he do? He started off by apologizing. I'm sorry. That's the biggest thing I effed up and I should have done better. And, you know, I think we'd all agree that some contrition is, is definitely important, but in a crisis contrition is not the biggest thing. The biggest thing is what are you doing to fix the crisis? Um, but I wonder, I wonder if Tom Brady thinks that's the biggest thing. What's that? I wonder if Tom Brady thinks that's the biggest thing. <laughs> yeah, I feel much better losing millions of dollars. Yes. That you're sorry. <laughs> Thank God. But I don't know. Like, if if a crisis is this bad, like I'm, I was trying to think of an analogy where effectively, like, the company's done. Like, there's no coming back. No one's going to invest the billions of dollars that it would take to bail the company out. Does it really matter? I don't know. Maybe I'm being. Maybe I'm just being hypercritical of crisis management today. But certainly, this wasn't the. The, the methodology that I would follow, but I'd be curious to your thoughts. Molly, you, you had you mean, some, does it matter? Does it matter? What do you mean? If there's like a response like, or not, like the, the company's so shot, like the company's, the company's done for like investors are going to lose money. A lot of sadness and despair go, you know, will abound. Um, does it really matter what the company says at this point? Because it is such a catastrophe. Yeah, I, I'm with you on this. It's like the fire festival of, you know, yeah. crises. There is nothing that you can do to pull out of it other than, for, you know, from our point of view, I thought, and again, this is a story I missed. I was only alerted to it, you know, from a friend of mine who works in sports or a client of mine, actually. And you're right. Like he, cause he said, how did you not see the tweet that I'm sorry? That's, that's the biggest thing, you know, I effed up. Um, it, he's saying you know, all the right things. If you do the mad libs of a crisis response, but you're absolutely right, John, it does not matter. But who it does matter to is Tom Brady and Giselle, like two of the biggest names, you know, Steph Curry's in there too. Like so LeBron, like there's a lot of people who lost a lot of money. So this is really like an Enron level, like Lehman Brothers level level. So where the crisis is, John, would you agree with this for crypto? Is it a crypto crisis? Totally. I think industry-wide, there's already a knock on effects to this as the whole sort of these ripples of failure go through the ecosystem. And you know, it's like that old uh, Warren Buffett quote, when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing pants, right? Uh, the tide is, the tide is going out in the crypto space and we're going to find out uh, who's exposed here. Crazy story. It's kind of like Bernie Madoff though, saying, you know, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't think he did that, but like, I'm really sorry. And that's the biggest thing. It's really, it's really not the biggest thing. No, um, it's a good analogy. 
Was there um, any, was there any, and you know, I, I don't know the story very, very well, but like it, the implication is that there was something operationally, like they were handling these assets in not the, the best way or that it's a, it's fairly unregulated space. Like this is, there's, it's a whole, it's a shit storm basically. And then you could see the prices of all the other coins, like Bitcoin's down, Ethereum, like everything's getting smoked because of this. Hey, John, you would know this. I mean, you're the pro in this, but I read, is it really what he did? Um, and F- FTX, what they did is just a Ponzi scheme? Like crypto Ponzi? Uh, I wouldn't call it that necessarily. It may, who knows? It may turn out to be that one more is revealed. But um, if the two things that I have read is that the first is in taking money from investor accounts and and um, using it for other inv- investments. It's like a bank, right? When I deposit my money to the bank, I don't expect that my money is sitting in a little cubby hole somewhere in the bank. Like they're using that money to loan out to other. Um, uh, to people who want to buy homes or biz- need a business loan or whatever, so so obviously there's there there is a regulatory failure of some sort. If they were taking investor assets and using them in risky ways, uh, more risky than than they should have been. Mm-hmm. But then there's the, the bigger question of um, you know they over leverage the firm by borrowing too heavily. They I don't get into a big long detail explanation, but basically they created their own uh, token. And that token was in distribution amongst the market. They borrowed heavily against their own token. And um, in effect, what happened was there was a news story that ran that said uh, the company owns quite a large portion of its own token and, and it's heavily leveraged. And one of the biggest competitors of FTX, Binance, who also owned these tokens said, uh, we're going to sell our, all our, uh, uh, every, uh, most or all of our tokens that, of yours that we have, which the market fell out of the, the bottom fell out of the market for those tokens. And of course the fact that they FTX had borrowed against them so heavily meant that all of their loan covenants we reached. And all of a sudden it's like a giant call from, from lenders. And so the company starts unraveling into a, into a spiral. Mm. It just like, this has happened in other circumstances. It's not something that unique to crypto. It's you see it happen in, with banking and, in other places. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy who said he's going to sell it all, though, isn't he the same guy who tried to come in and buy the company? He is, after? yeah. So he yeah. kind of might have done that on purpose to try to drive yeah. the price down. But I was kind of joking with some friends. I said, it's, it's almost like that, uh, you know, that, that racket that organized crime would run. It's like, oh, it's a nice business you got here. We're ashamed of anything happened to it. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, that's not the case, uh, but it was ironic that the, the organization that triggered the crisis, so to speak, um, was was the one the next day was there to say, oh, we'll, we'll help you, but we'll bail you out. Okay. Well, so- according to Bloomberg Billionaires Index on a tweet here, it said his worth um, went from $16 billion to zero. Wow. <laughs> Imagine that. Speaking of billionaires who um, have gotten themselves into hot water recently, how do we not talk about Elon Musk, Twitter, Tesla, SpaceX, that, that whole universe. Um, obviously, the Twitter situation is is continues to unfold in and you know hour by hour. There's different things taking place. Um, we're just going to throw this out as the the sort of last item we're going to chat about on the on the podcast this week, and I'm not even sure where to begin. So Molly, you're, you're our guest here. Why don't we Why don't we start with you? Um, 
it's so interesting to see this playing out in real time where you see this very polarizing individual, Elon Musk, richest or one of the few richest people in the world. I guess it depends what's going on with uh, his stock price on any given day. But to be like live tweeting this situation as he's taken over the company, making these radical changes, firing half of the employees in one fell swoop and being attacked by all of these people while running all these other companies. Um, what's your take on this from a crisis management standpoint um, as a fan of Twitter? Like that's how we got to know each other and many of the people that we kind of interact with. Um, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now? You mean my unverified Twitter <laughs> thought? I don't feel I'm qualified to speak to oh, either Jesus. one of you as oh my God. verified Twitter users. <laughs> uh. Well, let's, oh, we're not going to discuss that. Bring it, um, bring it on. <laughs> No, well, here let let me let's start there though as a springboard because I think it all ties into it. So we all use Twitter. You're right. You're right, Warren. And so much of our community, like we've created this community, and that's probably the. I like Twitter for two reasons: uh, the the aggregation of it, the news aggregation that where you can get as much information as you want, you know, from a hashtag search away, and also the community that it that it builds. Um, I don't find it as effective for growing. But that's separate. I almost yeah. I almost find it like a response alert type of a social media platform now. Mm -hmm. I don't lean on it as heavily with my clients as I used to. Um, but what is happening there is, you know, when it came up to, you know, Elon's decisions and what he was doing, it sort of ties into the Kanye West story as well, is that many, you know, kind of reasonable people who can follow it along on a reasonable level knows that Elon's mind is managed differently than other people's. So, you know, they refer to it as a dumpster fire and, and everybody is kind of just watching it, knowing that this is not how you run, uh, how you effectively run a business. So it seems that there is a, a very um, critical piece that's missing, missing for any huge business to go through a crisis or a change like this or reorganization, which is trust. It's like no one trusts Elon Musk, not even from the inside. And people are walking away. I think I just read this morning, very key personnel just walked out the door this morning. Uh, there isn't an alternative site. Uh, Mastodon, I think is what it's called, is one that's kind of making a little bit of movement there, but there's nowhere else for anyone to go. So where is the value of trust with Twitter and what that comes back to, like with that whole verification of being Twitter blue, I used to be Twitter blue up until like a month ago, you know, I was trying it to see if it was worth its value. And then when they talked, talked about buying it and the parody sites, it wasn't clear because it is important. And this is me from my FEMA hat working from FEMA days. There are actual safety reasons why people need to know a verified account. You need to break down the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So when you blow that up just to make money, when everybody knows that it's that it's kind of hanging by a thread financially anyway, it just kind of creates this big mess that um, people, I think, are just standing by and watching. That's It's almost like a car crash that everyone's watching. So I guess that's my take on it. Hmm. Interesting. The, the quote, no one trusts Elon Musk, I think is, I guess it depends who, who you're referring to as your, as your audience. Um, certainly a lot of the folks who are left at Twitter, like the, half the people that he fired, probably not big fans. The, the folks who are there, you know, I don't like, I have no inside knowledge of this, but like the way that those layoffs took place, those terminations, 
um, because it was not handled well from an HR or a PR perspective. To me, there was almost, and this is just my my intuition from being my age that I'm at, um, it felt to me like there was some anger behind that, about the whole way that the deal um, transpired. He was trying to take them over, and then they said, no, you can't. Then he said, I don't want to, and then they sued him, you have to. And then he said, okay, well, and then they, okay, you can't again. And so it's this back and forth, and he's jousting with the uh, the CEO. What have you accomplished this week? What did you get done? Yeah. So it seemed to me that he he kind of felt backed into this deal, made it happen, at, you know, probably way over the value that the company actually is. And it, so it felt like there was some vindictiveness to those terminations to me. like And almost not to the people, but to the leadership. Like, screw you. This is what I'm getting. Like, so I, I might be reading too much into that. But um, can I add one thing? Cause you're onto yeah, something yeah. in every crisis too. And this is what I had said earlier too, is when you're going through it, the key is not to make it, take it personally, even though it feels personal, you have to, you have to blunt that and just think business. So when I talk about trust, I think there's a lot of people out there that trust that Elon can build a business. I mean, look at Tesla. I mean, there's yeah. gonna be people who are passionate about um, the success that he does have. And they're big believers. Like he has a zealots who certainly, you know, believe in him, but I would argue it doesn't feel though that anyone truly trusts that he knows what he's doing. It seems like he's making decisions on the fly and even deciding, you know, to pull the Twitter blue down, you know, that happened within 24 hours. Now it's no longer because people, you know, took it over that you could almost predict that people would use the blue and create parody sites against Elon Musk. So that, so that makes you, it's curious that, so that's the impression that I have is I don't trust that there's a long-term strategy that he's following. So, I, you know, it, it, I find it interesting that people, it's, I like the word zealots, that's interesting. I find it interesting that people make fun of or ridicule the guy's business acumen. Like, you, he's arguably one of the most successful business people who's ever walked the earth. And that's just, just look at the charts. Um, and you, know, you could say inflation adjusted and Rockefellers and, or stuff like that. But um, what major product has Twitter rolled out in the past 10 years? What major, like nothing. It's been this mm-hmm. very, they killed Vine, which arguably could have been TikTok. They bought it, mm-hmm. killed it. And then one of the founders ends up taking his own life. So slow, so there's molasses. And they had like what, seven or 8,000 employees. If nothing else, he's getting shit done. I think he tweeted something out. I'm not going to know the exact wording of it the other day, but it was basically, there's going to be a lot of dumb moves made, but we will continue to course correct in real time very quickly. And, uh, you know, maybe not from a business textbook, but I find it interesting that there's so much being done. So there's, there's an urgency around it and the verification thing. I'm sure that will get, that'll get resolved, but your, your, uh, your analogy of a car crash is, is a little, is a little interesting because if you look at what's happening right now, a lot of the people, and I, I'm guessing most of them are kind of on the far left very upset with what's happening. And with a car crash, you have two cars that kind of hit each other. With this, you have people on the side throwing gasoline on the car crash. Those are the ones who are having the the fake accounts and causing all the bullshit and hoping to contribute to to the downfall of this guy that they hate for some reason. And if I wouldn't know any better, Warren, it sounds like you're a Elon defender here. In a way, um, I think like he's a very polarizing individual. And he, you said like, what was your quote? His mind is managed differently. That's a very, like, he thinks like no other individuals. 
And um, I think it's hard to compare him with anyone else who is a comp, like fucking rockets that land themselves, cars that are just. Yeah. So um, I guess ultimately, here's a guy who has more money than he will ever need. Why does he make the decision to go and get kicked in the nuts every day by millions of people? And. It's like the Kanye piece, though. It's like there's probably some impulsivity there. And based on how it's managed, that's what he feels. I can't handle that comparison <laughs> between Elon Musk and Kanye West. No, 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 you can't. But you know, but how sometimes that's part <laughs> of the story, though. It is like people understand that about yeah. him. So what I will. So I agree with you that, um, yeah, that there's people who are fueling all of this. But I think a big part, you know, watching. I know you two are both the same. It's like you can feel the mood on Twitter shift every single day. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes it's crazy and sometimes, oh, we're back to business and we're back to normal here um, is the concern, though, if you think back right to the beginning, mm-hmm. what the sliver, the narrative was, was hate that he I think that was if there was one thing that really made it go sideways for him was that he was going to allow hate back on the site <clears throat> and how this narrative like I've seen the N word. I don't know how many, many times come up now. I will say, though that piece of it is starting to temper down a bit, you know? So he might, so Warren, that's why I'm, I'm saying like, yeah. I'm not going to abandon this. Like he might be able to write the ship and ships don't turn on a dime. Maybe that's the analogy that we're going to, or like the metaphor we're going to use here. Um, I don't think it's lost. I don't think people should leave. I'm not going to leave. Uh, but I, I just don't get the sense that he knows what he's doing yet. Doesn't mean that he won't do it, but I just don't feel like he I, knows it yet. I think people aren't used to like, I'm going to full disclosure. That's SpaceX shirt. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, See, both of you. Yeah. You're both ringers. I have for no this, swag right? on. There's no swag. <laughs> the SpaceX piece I, I raised because the, the engineering approach he's taken, like, physically to build rockets has been, we're going to try a lot of things really fast, and things are going to explode, and we're going to pick up the pieces, and we're trying to do things. And I think from a software development standpoint, he's probably following a similar suit. Like we're going to innovate really fast. We're going to roll new features out. Stuff's going to break. Stuff's not going to work. We're going to keep stuff that does work. And at the end of the day, you get, you get a rocket that lands itself. From a communication standpoint, there's so much polarization around him. I don't think it's realistic that he can actually act as a spokesperson for any organization right now without it just to your point earlier, Molly, about the algorithm of like drawing out controversy. I don't think he can talk without it just like fueling further controversy. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the things I saw him do is he started to elevate other voices from the company, like the guy who was in charge of um, uh, moderation. He was like sharing his tweets to demonstrate the success. The they former were employee. Yeah. Former. Removing, removing certain types <laughs> of speech. I think that's the solution. He's got to get his, he has to like quiet his voice, elevate other voices and bring some sort of calm around the company. Otherwise it can quickly all of a sudden become that thing and it's rolling downhill and people start jumping off and, you know, it becomes a cancel culture runaway, runaway train where it's like, Oh, we can't be seen to be associated with this because it's, it's bad news. It's too controversial. And that's what the, I think that's what they have to avoid. Um, I like that, John. Yeah, I think yeah. they'll do. I think they probably will. And at the end of the day, I think what's going to happen is the, it's going to quiet down. 
they're going to, it's going to take a year to probably like stabilize things, but they'll have like a better product in a year. And five years from now, he's going to take the thing public again and make three times as money because okay. it's going to be a, um, probably a, a much better product. That's bold. The, the, the sort of. Do I sense a bet in the offing? So Paranac, he's going to sell it for three times the value. And what was the time frame? Five years. Molly, you up for that? I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think you two are a little more vested. Uh, John has a lot of knowledge. I mean, he's wearing the swag. I mean, how could he not know it? I mean, you know, and also as an unverified Twitter oh user, I don't even think I'm qualified to make this bet. Just kick in the eight box. Come on. So the, the, the thing about this story that I find that, again, it's, remember, do you remember with the Rogers situation? Uh, Molly, you're, you're familiar that the Rogers had the big outage and then they put out the tech guy to do all the interviews, right? That it, to me, it was kind of like, that wasn't the interview that was the story. It was like, where are the, where's the CEO and why are they not there? Mm. But this one, I feel like there's a big story that's not being told that no one is kind of looking at who's really behind this. And I think it's Jack Dorsey. I think that's the guy who is the catalyst for all of this because they're buddies. They're very good friends. Jack, I believe he started the company and my, again, I have no knowledge or what, but my gut tells me he is sick with what has happened to the platform. He doesn't have the resources to do it himself. And, and Elon is doing this on his behalf. And I think he, he's tweeted nothing in the last couple of weeks, been very silent about this whole deal. I think that he is at the center of all of this. Wait, didn't Jack Dorsey though come out and apologize to everyone? He said, you know, like I'm sorry, week? I'm sorry for what, how all the stuff that's happened, but he has not, they've not been connected in any way or like, you know, arm in arm. I think you know, he, skipping he down put road. his money in. I think he, he rolled his equity. Like I think Dorsey still owned like a very, know, very small percentage 1% or something of the company, but I think he rolled that in with, with Elon's. But I feel like they were shooting the shit one night, having some drinks, smoking cigars. And I think this idea, I don't think this was Elon's idea. I think he's the the guy with the cash and the front and the, and you know, it could end up being some, this whole decentralized thing. It's going to be a lot of stuff is going to happen, but I feel like that's the story that's not being um, told right now. I feel like that the Jack piece is the reason that all this took place. Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears slightly. I think the story that's not being told is I have trouble running my life <laughs> with the limited things that happen in it. Like how is this guy running three companies at the same time? It's more Again, than three. Obviously, it? Obviously, oh yeah, he's in more than three. Neuralink and other like whatever else. Uh, obviously, he's got good good people in in various places. And he's but got like a hundred kids now too. At some point, if you, at some point, like if you're one of the investors in the other companies, like, <laughs> yeah. mm, hey, your, your attention is being spread maybe a bit too thin. Yeah. So, I are we gonna have a bet? Where is Twitter gonna be? Let's say twenty four months. Does it exist? Is it bigger? Is sure. it better? Is it worse? Oh, it definitely exists. But I, I'm curious of your conspiracy theory about Jack Dorsey. Like, is he the Jack Ruby? Like, is it a huge conspiracy I, I, that you're saying that they're connected together? Is that what it is? I feel is that like what I'm hearing you. I and I'm not saying this is my opinion. My my observation and my intuition is that, and maybe this is not appropriate for a podcast. I don't know, but I feel like. Jack Dorsey created this site so that you could chat with your friends about having pizza or going to the movies. And it's turned out to be this weaponized, politicized, poisonous, toxic 
shitstorm. And I feel like when he goes to bed at night, I would feel sick to my stomach if that if I created this thing and it was being spun out and you had no control over it. And um, the, they're buddies, they're friends. Like that's on the record. And I just, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that they were buddies. And I just I feel like I feel like the at the core of all of this is um, and this is going to sound like the the plot of a Marvel movie or something, but like democracy. I feel like they think that the way that it's headed now, that it, if it kept going that way, that uh, it's just a net negative for for democracy, for free speech and all of that. And it's so messy. We don't even have technically free speech here in Canada. Isn't that right, John? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just I sort of uh, I don't keep know. my head down. I'm trying not to pay t- attention to those laws and whatnot. I do, I do have a closet full of pitchforks if we need to have a storm. It's just a or something. It's just an observation, and so uh, it's it's really it's it's interesting and fascinating, kind of sad to see what's going on with. It's just it's entertaining if nothing else, but it's. Uh, I feel like exhausted after flipping through Twitter for 10 minutes. And it's just like, uh, I'm hoping this kind of dies down because it's such a cool platform. And um, for the work that we do, it's so cool to meet people and to, um, yeah, I have seen less bots. I don't know. I've seen less ads probably because all the advertisers have left. I'm sure that they've left. (laughs) They're all gone. You don't know who the bots are. uh, Um, I don't think the engagement is as high. I mean, my gosh, compared to TikTok, there's zero engagement on it. It's so minimal, but you're right. I I, I think it's going to be here. It's just going to be, I don't know. I don't even think there's going to be much of a change other than maybe leadership. You know, he just moves it on to someone else or back to Jack or someone else. All right. Um, And, any, any final thoughts, any other stories, anything anyone wanted to bring up before we uh, wrap up this episode? Oh, maybe for another one, but uh, the Boston Bruins. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We should talk about that, that one next story. Time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Cause there's been a few shoes that have dropped, including the, the development uh, challenge person that was harassed by that player speaking out. Um, I saw that. That was yeah. a gut wrenching tweet. Mm-hmm. And, but it made me think of, again, the brand of hockey in general and just the behavior. And it goes right back to Hockey Canada and all totally. the stories that came out. Hockey Canada, I've been watching documentaries of it. And it's just, it's a culture problem. Like, oh, you could say it's a hockey culture problem, but it's a sport culture problem. And just, there's so many different cultures. Hockey there, is different but. though. And, you know, my dad, who's played hockey, he's 78 and he's played hockey his entire life. He will famously say, anytime there's a situation like this, hockey people are not known for being smart. <laughs> and that goes for the people who run the hockey hall of fame who run most of the teams. Um, they live in a little bubble and they don't play by the same rules of the rest of the world. And, and yeah, that was, that was a terrible one. So maybe we can uh, throw that into uh, next week's episode. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Molly, thank you so much for being with us. Paranak. Thanks once again for your, uh, your insights. Hope everybody has a wonderful weekend and we'll hopefully do this again soon. Thanks Warren. Thanks Warren. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.